reading for this evening. We're continuing on in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is the very word of God. So it was, when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel, until we had crossed over, that their heart melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves, and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt were males. All the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they'd finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And the aid of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Indeed, O God, again, we ask that you would speak, that that we would hear the very word uh, of God here in this written word, that that you would give us ears to hear it, hearts to love it, uh, 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 wills to desire to obey it. Give us faith in Christ through the written, read, and preached word now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The big theme of Joshua that we've been considering so far together is this. God is making good on his promises to bring, specifically his promise, to bring his people, his holy people, into the holy land, the promised land. Uh, he, he's, he's called this people out of Egypt, separated them from, the, from, from sinful Egypt, made them his own. We see this emphasis in the holiness throughout the, the, the early books of the Pentateuch. Think of Leviticus, right? God setting aside his people as his holy people. And now he's bringing them into the holy land, the promised land. And that's what the book of Joshua is about. It's about uh, this, this realization at long last of God's promise to bring his people into this holy dwelling place where God himself can be their God and they can dwell with him. And, and this, this goal of God's people living in God's place has been something that has been, uh, uh, that, that the people of God have been anticipating for generations after, upon generations. 
goes all the way back explicitly to Abraham. God promises Abraham a land, a holy place where he will dwell with Abraham's descendants. Right? That's, that's so many years before the events here. The people have been longing for this. And, and if you think about it, it goes beyond Abraham all the way back to Adam and Eve when they're exiled from the garden, no longer dwelling with God in that holy place. What's, what's their hope? It's that God is going to send someone who will eventually bring his people back into communion with him in a holy place. So this promise has been a long time in coming for the people of Israel. So it's no surprise, right, that this promise has been such a long time in coming uh, uh, to fulfillment. That It's no surprise that, that we see God reassuring his people over and over and over again in the early chapters of the book of Joshua. We've seen this already. Chapter 1, God reassures the people of his presence with Joshua to equip Joshua. He calls Joshua to be strong and courageous, for I will be with you, he says, so that the people can trust this new leader and follow his leadership because the Lord's with him. He's reassuring them there. In chapter 2, he reassures them of his power and his might, which is terrifying the inhabitants of the land before them. He promises them there that the land is already theirs even before they've drawn their swords, even before they've crossed the Jordan River. God is reassuring them in chapter 2 that the land is theirs. He's guaranteeing it to them. Then in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see this glorious, stunning miracle. Right, The Jordan River is, is parted and the people walk through a display of God's might and a display of his mercy to bring his people at last into the promised land. Now here they are. They've come through the, through the Jordan River. They're, they're on the other side. The river has gone back to its normal course at flood stage. So there's no turning back now. That was a one-way door. There's no turning back now. Ahead of them looms Jericho with its massive, impenetrable walls. Uh, the people are rejoicing that they're in the land, but there's a lot of work to do. You might think they've landed on the beaches. It's, it's D-Day. They've landed on the beaches. You know, they're there. Victory's in sight, but it's a long road ahead. There's much uh, conflict ahead. There's going to be difficulties ahead. And so the Lord so graciously, once again here in Joshua 5, comes and reassures his people. He reassures them once again as they prepare for the conquest. How does he do this? What does he reassure them of? Well, two things. He reassures them of two great things. Number one, he reassures them that they have a place in his covenant. And number two, he reassures them that his covenant promises are are indeed coming true, already coming true for them. So the first thing he reassures them of is, is their place in the covenant. He says, you do have a place in my covenant. And then, he, and then he's reassuring them that his covenant promises are indeed already coming true. And, and brothers and sisters, as we've seen throughout our study of Joshua, this reassurance is not just for the people of Israel in their day. It's also here a reassurance for us. These same things that the, the Lord wants us to be reassured of, to know our place in his covenant and to know his promises will come true. Indeed, they already are coming true for us. He wants us to know who we are and what our future is and to rest reassured in that. And, and we need this reassurance. Think about it. How long has the church been waiting for the fulfillment of the promises, of the, of, of the true heavenly spiritual promised land? How long have we been waiting for that and longing for that? 
How, is, how, how does God sustain our faith, our faithfulness, and this long wait that it feels like on this side, right? This, uh, until we are with Christ in glory. So we need these reassurances, brothers and sisters. So let's consider them together. These reassurances for our faith here at Joshua chapter 5. The first one is this, your place in the covenant in verses 1 through 9. Here the Lord reassures this new generation of Israelites of their place in the covenant as he commands Joshua to give them the sign of covenant membership. So your place in the covenant, our first point, verses 1 through 9. Verse 1 starts this section just with a, a quick reminder to the reader, to us, about how the kings of the nations are responding to the news that God has parted the Jordan River. The kings of the nations hear this, and they're terrified. Their hearts melt, it says. Their, their spirits leave them. They have no courage. They have no will to fight, no will to resist. This is the drumbeat that we keep here sounded over and over every time we've heard about the kings of the nations who are dwelling in the land. Whenever the, the narrator mentions them, this is, this is the theme. They are terrified of you, Israel, because of who your God is. That's what verse 1 does for us, reminding us again there of this. And then verses 2 to 9 bring our attention back to Israel. And what we read there is really quite surprising. At least it was, at least it was to me. The Lord commands Joshua to have all the men of Israel circumcised. All the ones who haven't yet been circumcised. This, this generation that was born and raised in the wilderness. And the first question I ask when I, when I read about this is, well, why? Why weren't they already circumcised in the wilderness? The text makes a big point about this. Verse 7 says, They were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. But, but why weren't they circumcised on the way? That, that's a big deal, that they hadn't yet been circumcised. Circumcision is the sign of the old covenant. It's the, it's the sign that, that you're in this covenant that God's promises to Abraham are, 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 are your promises. Right? This, this is the sign of belonging to God and the covenant of grace. And a whole generation has grown up without receiving this sign. Imagine if that happened you know, to us, if, if we didn't baptize our children for an entire generation, 40 years. What would that communicate to us? What would it communicate to our children? Why haven't they been circumcised? The text doesn't... Tell us explicitly why. Verse 7 gives us the fact they're being circumcised because they weren't circumcised in the wilderness yet. The, the generation that came out of Egypt was circumcised, we're told in verse 5. The generation born during 40 years of wilderness wanderings was not. So why? Well, I think the answer is in verses 4 and 6. Verse 4 reminds us that the entire first generation that came out of Egypt with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the entire first generation died in the wilderness as an act of judgment. They were circumcised, but they died in the desert. And verse 6 tells us why. It's because of their apostasy, their unfaithfulness, their unbelief, and their disobedience. We get it explicitly, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, the text tells us. That's the legacy of the generation of men that came out of Egypt. Unbelief, disobedience, a rejection of God and a rejection of God's promises. Is God going to allow this generation that so rejected Him and rejected His covenant promises to give their children the sign of covenant promise? 
when the first generation there coming out of Egypt gets to the promised land the first time, they say, God can't really give us this land. We were better off in Egypt. So God says, none of you can enter the promised land. That's his judgment on that first generation. And then as an added judgment, he withholds from their children the covenant sign. It it would have communicated something like this to the unfaithful generation. Why should I allow you to give your children the sign of promise when you don't believe my promise? It's It's a terrible judgment on that unbelieving generation of Israelites that came out of that came out of Egypt. So that's, that's why I think the people haven't yet been circumcised. This new generation hasn't yet been circumcised. It was withheld from their parents to give them the covenant sign when they had so thoroughly rejected the covenant promises. But why now? Right? That's, that's another question I have as I read about this generation. So they haven't been circumcised yet because God was withholding that sign from them for their parents' unbelief. Why, why, why is God having them be circumcised? Now, why now after they're already in enemy territory? Why, why incapacitate temporarily such a big portion of your army right, right, right before you're marching to war against Jericho? Pragmatically, it doesn't make sense, does it? That, that God would have them do this now. But of course, in the care of the sovereign Lord of all the earth, what difference does it make how many able-bodied fighting men you have or how strong your armies are, right? That's, that's a total non-factor for the Lord of hosts. There's no vulnerability in obedience. It's the safest place to be, right? Because the Lord is with them. The Lord is fighting for them. So he commands them to be circumcised now. He's highlighting that point. Not by your might, Israel, are you kept safe, but by the sovereign Lord of hosts. Well, what is the significance God commands them to be circumcised now. What's the significance here? One of the commentators uh, puts it this way. He says, The Lord did not enjoin the renewal of the covenant sign. He did not command the renewal of the covenant sign before Israel had been conducted into the promised land because he saw fit, first of all, to incline the hearts of the people to carry out his commandment through this magnificent proof of his grace. Listen, the commentator says, it is the rule of divine grace first to give and then to ask. It is the rule of divine grace first to give, then to ask. That's exactly right. That's what we see here. God God has not had them do this yet because first he wants to show them his grace and his power to save them before they've they've, uh, taken on this covenant sign and obedience to him. He wants to show them his power and his grace to deliver them, to bring them into the land, to give them the inheritance that was promised even before they've taken the covenant sign. To show them his grace and to call them to obedience in response to his grace. And that's exactly how God works with us, isn't it? Before we ever commit ourselves to God, he's committed himself to us. Before we we submit ourselves to him, uh, trust in him, he's already been working in us by his saving grace to bring us to himself. We love because he first loved us. That's the divine order. Grace gives before it asks. That's why it's only after they've crossed the Jordan and entered the land that the people are commanded to take the sign of the covenant here. Well, what's the payoff for the Israelites here? Well, we started out by saying this is a reassurance to the people. How how does this reassure them? Well, they're reassured of their place in the covenant by by taking on this covenant sign of circumcision here. 
think, think about it. There's this generation of Israelites here, an entire generation that's never been circumcised because of their parents' unbelief and failure. Would you really feel like an Israelite without the, the definitive external mark of being an Israelite? It would be like being a, a Christian without being baptized. Or what, what kind of doubts and, and, and uncertainties would have plagued that generation? Thinking of their parents' abysmal failure and, and, and not having the covenant signed. Am I really part of this covenant? Are God's promises really for me? Am I included here? Well, I think by waiting till this point and then by having the people circumcised here, the Lord is saying, yes, you really are part of this covenant. My promises are really for you. I have not rejected you. Though your parents spurned me and you lived under the shadow of their disobedience for 40 years wandering in the desert, I have not rejected you. You're a new generation that I've raised up and I'm marking you out once again as my own people. I'm giving you the sign of the covenant. That reassurance for us to know we belong in the Lord's covenant, in His family, is vital for the Israelites as they go to the conquest. It's also vital for us in the Christian life. Not to live with your place in God's family in question but to know I belong in the Lord's covenant of grace. And God himself wants me there. That's such a source of confidence and strength and courage. We know this on human terms, right? A child flourishes when he, he knows he has a place in the family, when he knows he's loved, when he knows he belongs in a family. That's when a, a child has confidence and courage and grows. It's so much more the case in the Christian life. When we know we have a place in the covenant of grace, that the Father has called us to Himself and placed His love on us and saved us, we, we, we are strengthened, we have courage, we have confidence for the warfare we're called to because of the sense of belonging to God. Where do we look for the reassurance that does this for us, that strengthens us in this way? Well, the, the Old Testament saints here are called to look to their circumcision for this. We don't have circumcision, of course, but we have baptism, right, which corresponds. It's the, it's the new administration, it's the form of, uh, of the covenant sign that corresponds to circumcision in the new covenant. We read about this earlier in Colossians 2, where Paul makes this close connection between, between circumcision and baptism. And if we look more broadly at the Old and New Testament, we see that in both God gives the people a sign of belonging to this covenant of grace. In the, in the Old Testament, it's circumcision. and the New Testament, it's, it's baptism. Circumcision was a, was a symbol, uh, was a seal of belonging to the covenant. It set the Jews apart from the other nations around them. Uh, it symbolized judgment for them. It was a bloody sign. It symbolized judgment that didn't fall on them, but fell on, on someone else in their place for their sins. It symbolized the death of the old self. Right? For this generation, Joshua 5.9 tells us that this symbolizes the death of their old uh, enslaved to sin selves. Joshua 5.9, God says, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Their old sinful selves have died. They're forgiven of their sins. They've been brought out of Egypt, not only physically, but also spiritually brought out of, of Egypt. So this is what circumcision did for them. And it, it sealed them, it confirmed them as members of this covenant with God, this covenant of grace. 
And baptism takes all that, carries it over into the new covenant for us. This is what we have in our baptism. But, but, but it's so much more clear for us now. Because it, 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 it's, it's a baptism into Christ. It signifies, it seals our union with Christ. Our sharing in, in the covenant of grace with Him. Our commitment to the Lord. Right As the water is sprinkled on the head, it's, it's, it's the symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon us and uniting us to Christ in His death and His resurrection. It's saying God's name is placed on you. You are, you are marked out as belonging to the Lord now. Your old sinful self has died with Christ. You've been forgiven of your sins. You're a member of the covenant of grace now. And you're committed to live accordingly now. You can think of it a bit like, like a wedding ring. You're no longer who you were. The, the, the wedding ring symbolizes that. It's a seal of your new relationship that you're in. You're no longer who you were. You're no longer to live the way you used to live. To, to live, you have a new identity and a new commitment. And that's what baptism tells us. You belong to Christ. His name is on you. You have a place in the covenant of grace. You're committed to be the Lord's. So the question for us is, are you making good use of your baptism? Now, baptism is something that probably for most of us happened a while ago. How does that distant event reassure me? How do I make good use of my baptism? Our larger catechism actually has a question about this. Question 176, how is baptism to be improved by us? That's the question we're asking. How do we make good use of our baptism? The answer they give, this is just part of it, is by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of baptism, and of the ends for which Christ instituted baptism, the, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed by baptism, and our solemn vow made in baptism. Right, so they're saying, well, you've got to think about your baptism. To improve it, to make use of it, you've got to think about it. Think about what it means. Think about what it means for you. Think about what it seals for you, what it, what it, what it symbolizes for you. Think about what it demands of you, what it asks of you. There's little that can reassure us more than this, brothers and sisters, this symbol and seal of our place in God's covenant. God has placed his name on us, given us the sign, the seal of being united to Christ. The reproach of our sin is rolled away. We have a new identity. We live in a new world, not in the world of slavery to sin, of Egypt, right? But we've been freed. We're in the new creation, this, this covenant of grace, not under the law anymore. We are, we are in this covenant of grace. I belong to God. He said so in my baptism. So when temptation comes, when trials come, what should we do? We should say, I'm baptized. This is something that Martin Luther reportedly is, is known to have done, that, that he would he'd be wrestling with temptation, wrestling uh, with the powers of darkness, and he would cry out, I am baptized! I am baptized! In other words, I belong to Jesus Christ, and I have a place in the covenant of grace. What a, what a wonderful reassurance that is to us. But that's not all that we need reassurance of. Not, we need to know not just that I belong to Christ, that I have a place in God's covenant of grace. We also need to know that God's covenant promises are coming true. Not, not just to know that I belong, but that it's worth belonging. That this, this is a good place to belong. That God's going to keep his covenant with us. And that's our second point. 
God's promises of the covenant. And we see this in verses 10 through 12. God reassures us here in, in, in two ways in verses 10 to 12. The first is in verse 10. Here God reassures the people by the reminder of the salvation that he's already accomplished for them in the past. He points to their past salvation as the guarantee of their present salvation. So the first thing this people does, they, they've entered the promised land. The new generation's been circumcised, taken the covenant sign at last. Um, here they are. And what do they do? They celebrate the Passover. Um, this, of course, is, is the celebration of God's deliverance of the people from Egypt. That first Passover happened the night when, when God uh, uh, killed the firstborn of Egypt, that he might deliver the firstborn of Israel. It's the night when Israel is uh, waiting in hushed expectation for God to deliver them and free them from Egypt, when they had to spread the, the blood of the lamb on the doorway of their homes so that the angel of death would pass over them. And in God's providence, it just so happens, right, just so happens that, that as they enter the promised land, 40 years later, it happens to be on the anniversary of the Passover. Imagine what that would have been like for the Old Testament saints there. You've just come through the Jordan River, received at last the sign of, of the covenant, and, and God is saying, now celebrate the Passover. Remember my past salvation for you. Commemorate that deliverance from Egypt. Here you are. If God's might overwhelmed Egypt, surely what is left to do here in the promised land, these nations that are left to conquer, are no challenge for him. But that's not all the Lord is doing for his people here. He's not just saying, remember my might against Pharaoh and, and, and Egypt. He's also saying to the people, I am finishing what I started. All right, think about that first Passover. Back in Egypt, the people there, they're in hushed expectation of what God's about to do, probably feeling a mixture of fear and hope. The angel of death's going to pass over, pass by us. What is about to happen? What's going to happen tomorrow as, we're, as we leave this place? What is the Lord about to do? It's a feast of anticipation for the people of Israel that first time. A feast that's, that's, that's hanging on to promises. This, this Passover that people are celebrating now, of course, is a, is a, it's, it's remembering that first Passover, but, but now it's not hanging on promises so much, is it? It's, it's, it's a feast of realization. Right? They, they have come into the land. All God's promises to them are starting to come true, and they're seeing it with their own eyes. The whole goal of, of the Exodus was that the people would come and possess this land, and now, finally, here they are, celebrating God's past salvation as the guarantee of their present salvation. The Lord is saying, I'm finishing what I started. What I started in that first Passover in Egypt long ago Here's the consummation, the first taste of the consummation of that here in the promised land. And as if that's not enough, the Lord adds to this yet more reassurance of his blessing. In verses 11 to 12, the people then enjoy the produce of the land. So they've, they've celebrated the Passover, and the very next day they enjoy the good blessing of being in this promised land. So God has made good and his guarantee to bring them into the land. Now he's making good in his guarantee that the land is good. The provision of manna ceases the very day uh, that they begin eating what the land provides. 
This land is flowing with milk and honey. There's no lag here between the ceasing of the manna and God's provision in the wilderness and now this promised land providing them with things. And they're already tasting the fruit of the promised land. His his covenant blessings are already flowing to them. It's almost like like they've um, come into a garden, cultivated, flourishing garden, and they've been commanded to eat from every tree. Right? Think like, like Eden. Here they are in this new Eden. And God is providing richly for them. They haven't tilled the ground. They haven't planted trees, weeded the crops. Here they are enjoying the produce by the Lord's grace to them. You see what God is telling His people. How He's once again reassuring them. He's, he's telling them, I always keep my word. Here's a taste of, of the goodness of my provision. So long promised. Here it is at last. He's giving them the good land. They haven't fought a single foe in the promised land yet, and they're already enjoying the fruit of the land because of God's saving power and His grace. Brothers and sisters, what, what about us? Once again, that's the question we need to ask. This text is designed to reassure us, encourage our faith in Christ. What does it say to us? Well, it, just like to the Israelites, it says, God keeps His word. He keeps His covenant promises. He's giving us the inheritance, the heavenly promised land, just like He promised. Again, we mentioned this already, but but this is an assurance, a reassurance that we need, isn't it? It can feel sometimes like a long road between here and heaven. The, The promised land of the new heavens and new earth sometimes seems too good to be true. The church has been waiting for it for so long from our worldly perspective. The temptation is, is the waiting worth it? Are God's promises going to come true? The text here tells us, yes. A thousand times over, yes, it's worth it. But we need to be reassured of that. So, so where do we go? Well, the Lord gave His people two things to reassure them of His promises here. He gave them the Passover, and He gave them a taste of the goodness of the land. He's given us, of course, something similar, but, but even better. Instead of the Passover, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This, of course, is the other sacrament of the New Covenant. It's another sign and seal of the covenant of grace, like baptism. But in the meal of the, the Lord's Supper, we, uh, we, we do a few things. And I want to look at just three. We, we eat in memory. We eat in hope. And we eat in communion. We eat in memory. Memory of the crucified Christ. And, and, and we taste there the guarantee of our salvation. We, we remember as we, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, even as we did this morning, we remember Christ's body broken for me, His, His blood poured out for me. We see the bread broken, the wine poured out, and it's a picture to us that Christ was broken, shed His blood for me, for my sinful self. It's a display of His grace, a reminder of His grace, a picture of the work of salvation that He has 100% accomplished. And, that's, and, and, and when we partake of that, we are guaranteed, once again, the future salvation that is ours in Christ. If Christ accomplished all there, how will God not bring it all to completion in the end? So every time we eat of the Lord's Supper, we should have this in mind. Surely the mighty mercy that saved me in Christ's death will also bring me to the heavenly promised land. We also eat in hope, not only memory. We also eat in hope. As, 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 we, you know, as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we can say, if we're trusting in Christ, even as I eat this meal, I will one day feast with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. 
It's a, the, the Lord's Supper that we eat is, is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, the great day when, when, uh, when the, the kingdom is consummated, the promises are all realized and we're there with Christ in glory. The, the Lord's Supper here is like a table in the wilderness, a foretaste of things to come between here and heaven. So we eat in hope. That's part of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as well. But, but that's not all. We also eat in communion with the ascended Christ. Christ comes as we partake of the Lord's Supper. He comes and He's present not, in the, not, not physically present in the bread and the wine, but he's there really spiritually with us. He himself administers the sacrament. We have communion with him. It's, it's, as, it's as though the, the king who has gone before us opened and entered the heavenly promised land, comes to where we are and, and ministers to us, gives us grace, encourages us, strengthens us on our pilgrim way that we might persevere in our uh, journey towards heaven. So the Lord's Supper is a sweet and wonderful reassurance for us of God's covenant promises. Brothers and sisters, it's not just the Lord's Supper. We see more here. The Israelites were reassured also, not just by the Passover, but also by the taste of the goodness of the promised land in advance. And it's also with us. Right, that the Lord provides the sacrament. He also gives us a taste of the goodness and the glories of the land to come. It's the down payment. That's what the New Testament calls us. The, calls it. It's the down payment, the, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Paul, talking over in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, is talking about the coming heavenly inheritance. He writes this, He who prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the guarantee or the down payment of the Holy Spirit. Christ has gone already to the heavenly promised land and he sent his Holy Spirit to abide with us that we might already begin to taste the goodness, excuse me, the goodness of the age to come. That we might have a a, a sweet foretaste of our inheritance which is to come even as we are in the midst of pilgrimage and and, and, uh, the journey towards heaven. We are already seated with Christ spiritually and by His Spirit enjoying a rich taste of the goodness of our inheritance that is coming. So brothers and sisters, um, as, as we close, let me encourage you to make the most of the means God has given for your reassurance of these things, uh, of, your, of your place in the covenant, that you belong in His covenant and of His covenant promises. We see here in particular we should make use of the sacraments. Make use of your baptism. Own it. Remember it. Use it to fight doubt, temptation, discouragement. When you see someone else being baptized, recall your baptism as well. Christ has placed His name on you. You are are baptized into Christ. Uh, You're not in Egypt as a slave to sin. You are in the covenant of grace. Your sins are forgiven. Make use of the Lord's Supper. Use it to remember Christ's work of salvation. Right? And, and taste there the guarantee of your salvation. Taste there your future hope as well as you look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb to come. And draw encouragement from the Lord's Supper as you have communion with the risen Christ and with His people there. And also pray for the, the, the taste of the glories and goodness of the heavenly promised land to come. That, that the Spirit would, would minister by and with God's Word for you. 
that you might enjoy sweeter and sweeter communion with Christ. That's what the Spirit does. He takes God's Word and He ministers it to us so that we have a sweeter and sweeter experience of Christ's life and love. Pray for that. Seek that. God has so richly provided for us to be reassured of who we are and who He is, that I have a place in His covenant of grace, and that He has an unchangeable, absolute commitment to that covenant of grace to keep those promises to us in His Son. So let's make use, brothers and sisters, of these things. Let's pray together.